0: Welcome to the Legislate Podcast, a place to learn about the latest insights and trends in privacy, technology, business building, and contract drafting. Today, I'm excited to welcome Ellen Lake from Clifford Chance on the show. Ellen is a senior associate specialized in investigations and financial crime. Ellen, thank you for taking the time. Would you like to please share a bit of background about yourself and Clifford Chance?
1: So, I'm a lawyer at Cliff Chance. I've been there since 2008, and I'm in the disputes and investigations practice area. So, I spend most of my time advising clients on risk and compliance, assisting them with crisis management when those risks crystallise, and uh, most significantly, carrying out investigations or defending clients where they're the subject of investigations by a regulator or or a law enforcement authority.
0: That's a very interesting role. And what does an investigation actually mean?
1: Investigations can take number of forms largely what I do is I'm a skill set so I'm very good at interviewing people to find out about what's happened I'm good at putting together reports reviewing documents putting together the the bits and pieces into a jigsaw to to tell the story and so those could be internal investigations like there's been an allegation of um, bribery within a company and I go in and see what's happened there and then often we'll track that through so we'll be reporting to the board or the management and advising them on steps they need to take to whether it be reporting that behavior or disciplinary action or some sort of new policies and procedures so it's right the way from sort of managing a, a crisis something that's happened through an investigation to what we would call remediation in professional consultant speak which is trying to put everything back together and make it work work going forwards. very
0: fascinating and um, I imagine for large corporates you must play a very key role as a senior associate at Clifford Chance what's been your favorite moment so far
1: Pre-COVID, there was a lot of travel for the job, going to all sorts of random jurisdictions and countries to interview people. And it was exhausting, but it was also really rewarding. And so there are a number of highlights from things like trips to Peru and Milan and all sorts of interesting mines and factories and all sorts of places. Although I think actually still my favourite moments have been when I was a junior, lawyer and had to take a group of Texan investors to Croydon for the day, most of whom were wearing cowboy boots and one was wearing a Stetson, so that was particularly memorable. But actually, I think from a professional pride point of view, my favourite moment is the, the small number of occasions when one of my investigations has been the top story in both the BBC and the Financial Times at the same time. That's pretty cool.
0: Congratulations on, on those, those features in those uh, media publications. What would you wish you'd known uh, before becoming a lawyer?
1: I think there's a view of the law on TV and criminal barristers and suits where people, they do M&A one day and they do... And they stand up in court for lit- for doing litigation the next day. But what I hadn't really appreciated before becoming a lawyer, and uh, what I wish I'd known, is how important it is to actually <laughs> not just think about the law, but think broadly and laterally and commercially. So when you're doing your technical legal training, it's obviously focused on the law. But so much of my day-to-day work is, is about working with clients to understand their business and to find pragmatic commercial solutions to manage risk. And to maximise opportunity. So I find it a really nice rounded profession and not nearly a sort of technical, legal, as you might see portrayed in, in popular press or, or on TV. That's
0: a very valid point. And as a investigator, what type of contracts or legal documents do you interact with the most?
1: More often than not, I come in when something has gone wrong. So that means I'm often looking at existing contracts when they're being challenged. And so that means I see the best and worst of contracts and I see how they operate when they're really tested in practice. So often I'm particularly considering certain topics which are present in many different contracts. So... I will look at analysing financial crime provisions in contracts. So those parts of the contracts which set out what is and isn't permissible with regard to say money laundering or bribery and corruption or sanctions compliance. Another common area of contracts I often look at is contractual obligations of individuals. So employees contract in the context of allegations that there's been some sort of misconduct within the business. So we tend to look at quite a broad range of contracts, but generally when they're under the most stress <laughs> and when they're likely to, the problems with them are likely to be flushed out. I think
0: that's a very unique position because most contracts are signed and forgotten and, and rarely revisited, only revisited when there are questions or where things go wrong, but still that, that is quite a rare occasion. Whereas if you see this all, every day, you must know how to, or you, you must know what it takes to draft a, a brilliant contract, which will stand the stress of allegation or some of a problem, what, based on your work and findings, you know, what are maybe common issues in contracts that might create... Based on your work and findings, what are common issues with contracts that might create risks down the line? Yeah. So there passes? are
1: many, but I would say there are two which are common to all different kinds of contracts, which I see a lot come out in the wash when a contract is under challenge. I think the first is a lack of consistency or conflicting clauses or, or conflicts between what two or more interrelating contracts say. So, we see a, we commonly see a lot of related contracts. You might have a main contract for the supply of services and then a sort of side letter agreement contract, which sort of bolts on the supply of some additional services, maybe at a later date. And you can have inconsistencies between those two documents. So... A common example is had disputes are to be resolved under the contract one contract might require that all disputes have to go to arbitration but another might say oh no you have to use the English courts and so thinking about those kind of consistency points and how clauses work together is always really important so if something does go wrong you know what the right route is to take that sort of lack of consistency I think extends to things like defined terms Um, lawyers love to define terms and I think therefore non-lawyers think that it you must have as many as possible but if you are going to define a term then you've got to stick to using that definition throughout and um i think it's interesting to see that law tech uk which is a government-backed initiative they've had a project recently on smarter contracts and they've just published their report and it contains various examples of how tech is being used to make the the creation and the execution and the management of contracts more efficient so i think we're going to stop seeing lawyers themselves using microsoft word to create contracts and instead start using those contract building platforms and i'm really hopeful that those kind of inconsistencies things like defined terms things that's sort of very easy to get rid of also very easy to forget that using those kind of platforms will really help iron out those inconsistencies so that's that's one area and then i think the second area again which is common to lots of different contracts is where you have obligations that fall through the cracks one party might be obliged to do one set of activities the other party is obliged to do another but there might be things that need doing to make that relationship work where it's not actually clear in the contract who should do them so It takes an oversimplified example. If you've got a parcel collection or delivery contract and it says that the driver needs to collect the parcel and put it in the van and the sender needs to pay for that in advance, but it doesn't say who needs to put the appropriate labels on it, for example. There's that kind of missing piece. So I think in in quite a long-winded way, what I'm trying to say is that when you're looking at a contract, you need to look just as much at what's not in it as what is in it, and look at what might be omitted, mm-hmm. because that that can often prove as problematic as the stuff you've actually got in there. I,
0: I think that's spot on, especially for non-lawyers not knowing well, knowing what's what shouldn't well, not knowing what's missing is really key, and uh, and I think that's one thing at Legislate that we definitely try to address with ontology of contracts, so that when we put a, a contract on legislation, we know exactly what the key terms are. We know how they interconnect so that they the contract can be built in a consistent way. And second of all, one feature that we're planning to roll out in the future is to make our ontology available to the public so that they could, for example, upload an employment contract and we will tell them what's missing in their agreement. Because I, I think that's one thing that non-lawyers especially take for granted that the, what they're signing is a contract because it says contract on it. And actually there's the, There needs to be quite a few elements and they need to be Mm. built uh, and connected consistently. So if, if, for example, I was a new founder starting a new business and I had to get started with contracts, what tips would you um, give them?
1: For me, in a number of contexts and not just in contracts, I think people will often head into something without really having got their head around the scope of what they're doing. And I think if you're going to draft a contract, you need to be very clear about what the scope of that contract is, like what that contract's for. So you need to be clear on the the scope of what you want to do who's meant to be doing, what the potential risks are, and whether you need some content in that contract to mitigate them. And if you can set all of that down clearly, that makes sure that everyone you're working with is on the same page and understands their respective obligations. And that doesn't necessarily mean having a very legalistic or lengthy formal contract, but some form of words that's user-friendly that all the parties can read and understand, which sets out what you're doing, who's doing it, when you're doing it, maybe why you're doing it, then that will stop those kind of misunderstandings arising at the outset. So I think really thinking about what it is you want to achieve before you start drafting, and I think lawyers are absolutely guilty of just starting to draft and hoping it evolves. But I think you've got to you've got to have a plan.
0: That's a very great tip, and I guess. The founders especially contracts are often the last thing they, they think of so I think it, it's they should remember that they need a contract and a clear plan. Ellen I'm conscious that I've taken a lot of your time so I'm going to ask you the closing question we asked all our guests. If you're being sent a contract to sign today what would impress you?
1: Plain English first and foremost is absolutely key to a good contract. So we have made great strides in the UK legal system over the last, certainly as long as I've been practicing and before that, in getting rid of these archaic terms and adopting plain English. But I think the layperson's view or the non-lawyer's view of what a contract needs to include often um, assumes it needs lots of these here-so-fors and notwithstandings and all those kind of quite archaic terms. And But at the end of the day, both sides need to understand what their obligations are under the contract. And there isn't any need to use that legalese or to make something sound more legal. And I I quite often with family members will deal with contracts that they send me to have a look at or something that they've put down on paper and they want me to make it legal. And I think often it's just a case of, of, of setting out in plain language what the party's obligations are what their expectations are of each other. And if I get a contract which very clearly does that, that is what impresses me the most. Not that it looks like a legal document. It's one that's clear and that people understand what they need to do with it. It it sounds like
0: you've described legislate, or at least we definitely try to the language of the contracts plain English, but also present different views of the contract for people who aren't necessarily familiar with contracts and, for example, presenting a set of questions and answers. We are working on a visual representation of the contract. We're Constantly experimenting and acting on user feedback to make it much easier because not many people actually create contracts. Not many people sign contracts on a daily basis, and it can be a bit overwhelming to read a large document, even if it's written in plain English. That's something that that we're working on. So yeah, thank you very much, Ellen, for um, taking the time um, best of luck with uh, your investigations and finding cracks in contracts. Thank
1: you very much.